0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we have Balaji Srinivasan, CTO of Coinbase, a platform for buying, selling, and storing cryptocurrency. Previously, Balaji was the CEO of Earn.com, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and the co-founder and CTO of Council, the genetic screening company. Here's Biology. Why Why do we think blockchain is, uh, you know, the most important technology of this decade? Uh, you know, Tom gave my bio, um, now I won't, you know, belabor it, um, but basically, uh, currently CTO of Coinbase, prior to that, uh, sold a company to Coinbase um, Earn. Um, prior to that, general partner at Anderson Horowitz, uh, you, you may be familiar with the firm. Um, we, uh, I also sold a company uh, for about 375 million dollars. Um, it's a genomics company. Literally came out of BioX, just you know, down, down the street over there, uh, with my brother and a bunch of our friends, and uh, basically just you know, a Stanford guy through and through. So you know, I kind of know your your pain. Um, so uh, so that's me. Um, but enough about me. Uh, let's talk about Bitcoin and blockchain. So uh, I, I like this particular image because I think it it motivates. Uh, you know, this is. Uh, screen cap of, of Wireshark and you can see the Bitcoin protocol literally as as a protocol on screen. And uh, what's amazing about this is you can see that payments have been turned into packets, right? This is, you know, a transmission, you know, this is a Bitcoin block. You can see the bytes over here. And what's remarkable about this is what's absent, right? There's no, there's no HSBC. There's no Wells Fargo, right? There's no countries. There's no, you know, licenses or anything like that, right? What we have done is literally digitize the transmission of value. Uh, and if you think about how big a deal it was to digitize books and music and movies and newspapers and, and so on and so forth, The, the underlying technology behind blockchain allows us to digitize now cash, stocks, bonds, mortgages, loans, derivatives, and all kinds of new things, financial instruments that you haven't even maybe thought of yet. So, so this is, you know, really like the, the motivating thing. Once, once we've got something into the realm of computer science, well, all you folks can go to town. Um, so uh, this is going to be a lot of fun over the next 10 years. All right, so I'm going to give, uh, you know, basically 10 things about blockchain, 10 things about Coinbase, and go through a FAQ and certainly answer all, all your all your questions. So just about Coinbase, uh, or, or about blockchain, I want to review Bitcoin, blockchain, then Ethereum, and then talk about Coinbase a little bit and do, do a Q&A. So first, uh, you know, just for those folks, just to level set, because I know there's varying backgrounds, um, I, I want to give the very, very, very basics. And in particular, this slide over here, uh, is if you only remember one slide and you know you don't want to remember anything else This is the motivation behind why even invent Bitcoin in the first place, right? So, you know with with physical cash, right uh, if I have a dollar bill and I hand Tom that dollar bill There's an implicit property of the dollar bill Which is when A hands that dollar bill to B, A no longer has it and, and B has it, right? I had it then now Tom has it and anybody who's observing that can see you know that that physical bill was handed over If I try to naively transplant that to the digital realm, okay if I take the the Federal Reserve serial numbers on that dollar bill and I just go and email them to Tom okay uh, well I still have a copy of those serial numbers and I can go and email them to somebody else okay and that is the fundamental issue with a naive representation of digital cash it is the double spend problem I could have spent those serial numbers with Tom and then with somebody else and somebody else and so simply using serial numbers alone that's not sufficient for, for basically scarcity in the digital realm. And so, so the way that we, uh, until the invention of Bitcoin, the way that we, we represented digital cash was with a, with a bank, right? Like a centralized actor that we trusted in the middle. And this actor over here is where the scarcity enters the system, right? When A sends money to B digitally, C is trusted to debit A and to credit B, right? So this is where the, the scarcity enters the equation. And the thing about this is you're, you're putting a lot of trust in C. Right? They can debit and credit anybody. They can choose not to debit or credit. They can not, you know, allow a transaction to go through. In extremists, as in, you know, 2008, you know, they could print billions of dollars for themselves. Uh, and, uh, so, so this is something which is, um, you know, inelegant from a computer science perspective to have a trusted central node if you can, if you can avoid it. Uh, and so what Stoshi Nakamoto did is he came up with D, decentralized digital cash. And so essentially this central actor, this, this bank, was replaced with a network of miners, and any one of those miners could approve that transaction, that debit or credit between A and B. And so, since any one of them could approve it, one of them disapproving it, you know, all they would just do is be giving up some some Bitcoin that they would have mined otherwise. It's basically a way to combine transaction approval and and seniorage, uh currency printing in, in the same unit. So the details of this aren't super important, you know, like technically, you know, at least for for a talk like this. But the, the concept is important, which is we took physical cash. We tried to naively turn it to digital cash. That didn't work, so we had these centralized actors. And Bitcoin dispenses with those centralized actors by having anybody, in theory, who can connect to the internet with sufficient computational power, can now approve transactions and, and push them through. Okay, so. The the cool thing about Bitcoin is once people understood this, and once people understood what a breakthrough it was, they said, oh, well, you know, this data structure that, that these miners are updating, that blockchain, that fundamental innovation behind Bitcoin, that's essentially a tamper-resistant database for storing arbitrary things of value. You can use it for storing cash, and you can use it for storing stocks and bonds and, and so on and so forth. But Bitcoin itself wasn't that easy to work with um, it wasn't, wasn't built for programming, or it, it was actually, but Satoshi turned off a lot of the, the more sophisticated opcodes early on just, just to keep it, you know, simple and, and uh, attack-proof. Um, and so what happened was, more recently, uh, a new blockchain was launched in 2014 called Ethereum, about five years after the launch of Bitcoin. And to understand the improvement that Ethereum gives, here's an example of like a script in Bitcoin, which is kind of almost like assembly language, it's like a stack-based language. Uh, and here's what, you know, Ethereum Solidity looks like, which is a little more, you know, like like English or, or JavaScript or what have you. And this programmability uh, led to a huge new surge in, in crypto activity. And in 2017, about was this massive ICO boom. Um, and this went up, you know, from like, you know, on the order of tens of billions of dollars to many hundreds of billions of dollars and then down to $100 billion. But the thing about this is... Um, you know, even though, uh, like, the the ICOs, like, came up and, and they went down, you know, we think of it today, it's, you know, it's the winter for price, but the summer for innovation. A lot of the stuff that kind of got started back then is starting to work. You know, for example, you know, you've got decentralized uh, prediction markets and decentralized loans and decentralized derivatives. That stuff is all starting to work. You know, the winter for price, the summer for innovation. One thing about ICOs themselves, by the way, is they represent, in my view, the simultaneous disruption of venture capital, SWIFT, crowdfunding, and cap tables. And I'll come back to that point, but essentially you can invest in something internationally with a group at the same time and have all of the property rights recorded in the blockchain so anybody can see. That's like such a big deal and so many innovations at once that... People can sometimes lose a farce through the trees because they say, oh, you know, what are you funding? You're funding all this you know, crazy stuff. But if you just look at it as an innovation in crowdfunding or in VC or, or Swift or Captables, it's actually a pretty big deal. Okay, so this, this brings us to the present day. So, you know, it was Bitcoin, then the blockchain, then Ethereum, ICO boom, and now the present day. The win- crypto winter, you know, winter for price, summer for innovation, okay. So, you know, the way to think about the blockchain as a technology is it improves fundamental financial primitives. And uh, one way of thinking about this is, um, you know, a blockchain, as I mentioned, it's a database for storing things of value. And it started with cryptocurrency, which is like digital gold. Uh, And, you know, more recently we've had, you know, these so-called ERC-20s, these tokens, which represent like equities. But you can also use it for other stuff, right? You can use it for, um, non-fungible assets, like, uh, you know, so-called, uh, it's very technical sounding, but like in-game items, like swords and potions, you know, baseball cards, collectibles, uh, or even, you know, eventually pieces of real estate, right? You can use it for representing identity, and frankly, you can use it for representing almost anything scarce. Anything scarce you can think of, you can represent in a blockchain. And you might say, well, why why use a blockchain for things that are scarce? Well, uh, w- once you've got a database that represents all the money in the world, uh, the first thing someone's going to try to do is write themselves a million dollars, right? And so you have to actually say, well, first, I, I want that to be tamper-resistant. Second, I don't want one party to be able to write themselves a million dollars. I want it to be decentralized, right, so that, you know, the, the power is split up. No one person can write themselves a million dollars. They might need more than a million dollars to write themselves a million dollars. And once you start thinking of those kinds of constraints, like a database that represents things of value, you start to be led to the kinds of properties that, that blockchains have. And once, of course, you can solve the problem of preventing someone from writing themselves a million dollars, uh, you can stop them from writing themselves a million potions or a million acres or, or a million of anything else. So, as I mentioned before, you know, like Bitcoin turned all this stuff into, into packets, right? Um, they're literally protocols, uh, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, these things, in that you can open up Wireshark and see the raw packets that update the underlying blockchains, right? It's like, just, it's actually completely amazing when, when, you, when you think about that. Um, anybody who's on the internet can send and receive cryptocurrency back and forth, you know, just send packets back and forth. Um, one consequence of this is, you know, there's, there's another, you know, people have talked about the unbanked and it's, you know, it's an important problem that, that I think crypto can solve in the, in the long term. There's another group of unbanked, which are, which are machines. Um, and, you know, we gave machines, telephone numbers in the form of IP addresses. It used to be that you had to have a human who is associated with a telephone number, and when you give a machine an IP address, a machine can then autonomously communicate back and forth, right? Um, and you do that all the time. Whenever you've written a bot that goes and interacts with with Twitter or or a, or a scraper, you know, like that, that spiders web and connects to other, you know, computers uh, autonomously. Um, autonomous machine communication was a really big deal. And we believe that autonomous machine transaction where machines can hold and send money on your behalf will likewise be a very very big deal right um, here is just in a, a simple you know github gist that you know string over there represents money right so if you can now transmit a string you can transmit an arbitrary amount of value which is pretty awesome um, so a lot of the stuff in the late 90s that people talked about when they talked about intelligent agents or like bidding entities and so on, that's all actually starting to happen. And the primary context in which it's happening are things like, you know, exchanges, especially decentralized exchanges. You can go and write a program on your laptop that will literally make you money as you sleep by arbitraging these decentralized exchanges. I think over time, in like the 10, 20, 30 year time frame, every price on the internet, every amazon.com, you know, product will have a cryptocurrency interface. So if you have some, Arbitrage strategy for like wool versus you know fleece sweaters or whatever, you can actually arbitrage anything because everything will be priced in crypto. That's I think where the arbitrage stuff goes in the in the medium to long term. Okay. Fourth point. You know, people talk a lot about the potential of blockchain, and I do think it has a lot of potential. Uh but you know, it's actually something where, you know, in some ways it's overhyped, but in some ways it's actually underhyped, right? That's to say there are fundamental financial primitives that the blockchain's already delivered like a 10x improvement on. And I mean a quantifiable 10x, right? So, you know, the easy one, the obvious one is, is gold, right? So Bitcoin is infinitely lighter than gold, okay? Like, it's it's faster to transport internationally, it's cheaper to custody. And to give a concrete example of this, you know, when the, the German Bundesbank tried to repatriate a bunch of gold from uh, New York, um, it took them years, it cost them millions of dollars to bring back billions of dollars in gold. Um, and while that might be an infrequent operation, it's an extremely important, valuable operation that frankly underpins like, you know, a big chunk of the world economy. And if you've improved on that, that's, that's a big deal, right? Gold is a $2 trillion industry. If, if that was the only thing that, that blockchain ended up doing, that'd be, that'd be a pretty big deal. But, but it's more than that. Um, Tom's going to buy some Bitcoin now. Um, so, it's more than that. Like, um, with the, with Ethereum, um, you know, and other kinds of cryptocurrencies, that represents a 10x improvement over Swift, right? You know, Swift, if anybody's sent a wire internationally, uh, that takes days to clear typically. Uh, whereas with Ethereum, I can be on the phone with somebody and just like I can wait for that email to, to hit, I can wait to just see it in the, in the blockchain and, you know, I can say, oh, that transaction is done. Boom. I can, you know, now, now get the deal closed. Uh, and so, you know, this is, the, the speed difference here is the difference between, like, a physical mail, like, you know, sending, sending a letter, which takes two to three days, versus an email, which takes, you know, minutes. And think about how big a difference that made, right? Like, when you went from physical mail to email, just the metabolism of business changed. When you go from two to three days for international commerce to minutes, the metabolism of international business changes, right? Third point, uh, crowdfunding, right? So in 2015, if you go to Wikipedia and you look at the list of the largest crowd funders okay uh you will see that it's like you know maybe 10 million 15 million dollars by 2017 2018 a large crowd funder was 4 billion dollars right so that's like a 400x improvement in about two two to three years uh and uh, and th- that's that's more than 10x that's like you know a 400x now you might argue well what are those things funding they're all funding ICOs and crypto stuff it's all this uruburos, um but uh it's actually something where you could fund a building Right, you could fund pretty much anything. Uh, you know, now, now that folks are accustomed to using crypto to, to do this kind of thing, it's a it's a powerful new innovation in crowdfunding. And I could go on and on. And and you know, I probably write an article on this, but you know, just a few more examples. So like Delaware incorporation, right? In in many uh, studies, like the World Bank has a study called Doing Business. And in this study, they actually say, hey, you know, how long does it take you to incorporate in your country? Does it take you weeks or months or does it take you days? And if it takes you days, well, you, you, you're, you know, a great country for business, a great country for, start- for startups. Well, Ethereum's shattered that, destroyed that, because it's not days anymore, it's minutes. You can literally get a smart contract into the blockchain in minutes, right? And that's amazing. That works internationally. You're not incorporating in Delaware, you're incorporating on the blockchain. And that might seem like an, in apposite comparison today. But lots and lots of stuff. All these VC terms, all of these bits of Delaware law are currently, as we speak, being encoded into smart contracts. So that incorporation on the blockchain will become probably the default in like I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And you know, there's more. Like the time to set up bank accounts, uh, the time to audit. You know, in, in 2013, people talked about you know Bitcoin as a scam. But today, the Big Four, when they audit a blockchain firm, they use the blockchain as the source of ground truth that they check all of your transactions against. Okay, so from a scam to the gold standard in like five years, and and so the point here is we're ten xing all of these financial primitives, like basic, basic fundamental things and how we move money, how we think about money, um, and that's going to have consequences. Good consequences, hopefully. Relatedly, not only have you know blockchains ten x lots of things, they've already created many billion dollar entities, right? So uh, you know three that in, that have you know risen in particular, you know the folks who founded new coins. Um, the miners who run these gigantic server farms, uh, and the exchanges, um, and each of these three groups has created and captured billions of dollars in, in total revenue. It's comparable, sort of, to the '90s internet when you know it's kind of the infrastructure stage, and you know search engines and and Akamai and and uh, you know AOL and so on were getting built out at that time. Sixth, now people talk about blockchains as being trustless, and Bitcoin is about you know no trust. I think a much better way of thinking about it is that they give you a choice of who to trust. Okay, So before, you just had to trust a bank. right? You had to store your money at a bank. You can't just go and you know, withdraw like a you know, million dollars from the bank. Uh, or you could, but you know, you'd be on a lot of lists. Um, and you know, today, what you can do is you can certainly still store it at a bank, should you so desire. You can store it with you know, a company like Coinbase. Or, and this is very new, you can store it on your computer. You can store it on a USB key. Um, you can, you know, store it in, in the cloud. You can basically self-custody an arbitrary amount of money. Uh, and, and that's a major innovation because, you know, it's like you can't carry a bunch of gold bricks around with you. You might be able to carry around suitcases full of cash, but it's a little bit conspicuous. Um, and, uh, and now you can carry an arbitrary amount of money. So th- that's a very new thing. You don't have to trust a bank if, if you don't want to. And, you know, places like Venezuela, this is actually, you know, r- truly a killer app. Number seven, I, I hinted at this before, but just just to drill into this point, um one can argue that the single most important data structure in Silicon Valley is the cap table, right? Namely the the very simple table that shows you know which people or entities own what shares of the company, right? Your common stock, your series seed, A, B, etc. Right. That data structure, that little table, that Excel spreadsheet maintained thing, um is what has aligned people from every country around the globe you know, in, in, uh, to, to build Silicon Valley. And, and the scale at which it's aligned them is tens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of people pre-IPO. And then you build this huge company and then everybody you know, hopefully does well together. Um, but you know, the, the state of the art for managing the most important data structure in Silicon Valley is an Excel spreadsheet or a Google Sheet, right? which is kind of, kind of amazing. Uh, and now what we've got with the blockchain is you can 10 or 100 or 1,000 x that number of people um, You know something like you know bat for example is 54,000 addresses that hold BAT, and you can see exactly who owns What when right and this is fully programmatic So one way I think about it is if aligning a few hundred people You know at a time built Silicon Valley What does aligning a few hundred thousand people at a time or a few million people at a time? What can that build right? So we can now align human beings and incentivize them like never before. That's, that's a really, really big deal. Um, so number eight, uh, you know, one way I think about this is, you know, like some, some of you here will be like, oh, you know, I got to see him for too late, I miss mobile, you know, it's over. Uh, no, it's, it's not over, just beginning. So, you know, one, th- one thing we think of is like blockchain first or crypto first is like the new mobile first. It provides a weapon with which to go and attack and open many industries or areas that were either close to competition or seemingly impregnable, or not even thought of as the kind of thing you could innovate on, right? So, you know, I already mentioned, uh, you know, international wires and precious metals and messaging, and I'll talk about the social bit in a little bit more. Um, but but there's also other areas that, are, that you know, you n- normally wouldn't think of as things you could even innovate on. For example, like DNS, right? With crypto, you can innovate on DNS, you can innovate at the protocol level, um, you know, with with things like uh, you know Blockstack or ENS or, or Handshake, where you can register domain names. These are also scarce entities. You can register them in a blockchain, and you can route you know uh, things through them. Uh, you can have incentivized versions of BitTorrent, incentivized versions of SMTP. All these protocols, you know, that you previously thought of as kind of you know non monetizable, are now potentially improvable and monetizable. Um, And There's also, you know, commons like Wikipedia open source projects where you can now take a fresh gloss in them and think Okay, how could I maybe tokenize this? How could I make this even even better? And so, you know, this type of stuff, uh, you know, there's there's so many different Crypto first companies that are kind of swarming and and attacking these different verticals that I couldn't even enumerate all of them But this gives you some of the flavor of them Coinbase adventures alone has made like 40 investments over the course of last year Ninth point so Blockchains break network effects, okay? And they give a completely new tool, a can opener, for going after scaled, uh social networks and two-sided marketplaces. One way of thinking about this is if you think about Metcalf's law, you think about network utility, typically, you know, the larger the network, you know, the higher the value to the user. So if Facebook have two billion people, you know, supposedly, you know, runaway advantage, you can't displace it, right? But there's something really interesting about crypto, which which is that if you have a token whose value is associated with the startup, um, the token's upside is maximal when the size of the network is smallest, right? So, for example, uh, an early investor in Snapchat um, had more upside than somebody who invested in the Series D round where it already had, you know, 10 million plus users, right? So upside is itself valuable, and now you've got a second term in the equation which can balance out that first term, some kind of hypothetical future value that for the first time you can programmatically issue to your users, for sign up and other kinds of actions that they take within your app, right? I mean, imagine if Facebook like, had something where the, the folks who signed up for it, the first 100,000 or 200,000 or a million users or end users, received some slice of Facebook's equity for doing that. Um, well, that'd be a very big deal. You'd actually start making money by signing up for all these dumb social apps, right? Um, so, so that's actually something which uh, I think is a very powerful tool for going after scaled social networks, two-sided marketplaces, and things like that, to split some of the upside with the user. Tenth, and relatedly, Um, blockchains, I believe, are going to transform social networks. So for the last ten years, people have been, you know, liking and poking and messaging each other, you know, wasting time. Uh, The next ten years, uh, you know, well, we've done making friends, it's time to start making money, right? So um, basically those edges, we think, are going to now have money on them, cryptocurrency. And you're going to have new kinds of social networks, what are we going to call them? Maybe digital economies or crypto economies. The fundamental difference being that your time on them is not wasted. Your time on them is actually like a form of work, where you're actually remunerated for it, right? And, uh, you know, some of these, you know, maybe existing social networks might be able to retrofit, but I think you're going to have to construct wholly new social networks that are based on these kinds of behaviors from the beginning, where earning is is, is part of the equation. So, you know, finally, just on, on the topic of blockchain, blockchain is like a partial move away from the cloud and towards privacy, okay? Um, an amazing stat from earlier this year is that Ledger sold its millionth hardware wallet, right? Now, I think of a hardware wallet. Actually, this is earlier last year, early, early 2018. Um, I think of a hardware wallet as being a pretty arcane kind of thing, right? But when a million of them have been sold, you're probably eventually going to have a billion sold in some form or the other, right? And, you know, one possibility is hardware wallets, like a, like a phone charger are bundled with a phone. So you get like three devices, you know, the, the phone, the phone charger, and the hardware wallet rather than two. Um, There's lots of different distribution models you could imagine, (laughs) but the fundamental concept is I think hardware wallets are going to become very popular. And that's a move away from the cloud and towards privacy because the whole concept of a hardware wallet is you're not keeping your keys in the cloud, you're keeping it locally. One possible future model is something where your data is on the cloud, but it's encrypted with the private keys that you're using in your hardware wallet. And so nobody can read it other than you, and it's only decrypted and and re-encrypted just in time. Um, I think things like homomorphic encryption and so on will make that possible. So let me briefly just give 10 things about Coinbase and then I'll take some questions. Um taking long time, I think. So um, you can think of Coinbase itself uh, as like the interface between fiat and crypto. Um, and, you know, we have both a retail and like a professional interface. And on the fiat side, we're building like a Wall Street 2.0, right? With like custody and indexes and, and commerce. And on the crypto side, we're doing like blockchain-first apps like, like Earn and, and, and Coinbase Wallet. And we work closely with regulators. Um, you know, our goal is to remain you know, the, the safe, legal, and trusted part of, of crypto. Um, and you've got all these licenses and so on, money transfer licenses, all that stuff. And our mission is basically to create a more open financial system for the world. Um, and you know, what that means is it's kind of two different groups of users that would benefit from that. You know, the first group are, you know, developers, investors, you know, like power users of money who are trying to move money around in different kinds of ways, do, do fancy things with money. And the second group are the marginalized, you know, the folks who are unbanked, uh, the folks who, you know, do not have bank accounts. Uh, both of these folks in different ways are pushing on the financial system to to make it more open. Um, and, and, and those are our, our folks. You know, what does that mean? By the way, what does a more open financial system mean? It does mean upside, it sometimes means downside. Upside is that you can raise $35 million in 30 seconds or disrupt remittances. The downside is there's new kinds of hacks and new kinds of scams and and so on. But I do believe in the medium term, you know, we'll mitigate the downsides with things like like multi sig or what have you. You know, Coinbase, we're kind of thinking of ourselves as bridging from the investment phase to the utility phase, um, which is to say that crypto has sort of the opposite emergence model of, of social media social media piled up the users first and then had to prove out monetization. And crypto proved out monetization first in almost the most literal sense and now needs to prove out utility, right? Um, but uh, we're seeing that happen. You know, I can go to lots of different things with, with EARN, with decentralized finance. Um, and we think that's a big part of the next, you know, five years or so. Coinbase is actually named after where the blockchain starts. So the, the so-called Coinbase transaction is where the new crypto is created in, in, in Bitcoin. And uh, that's why, you know, we think it's also where the blockchain starts for users, right? Like Just like, you know, Windows, you started using it, you know, with the start button, um, or Google search is where you started browsing the internet. You know, log on to Facebook, how you started using social media. Coinbase is where you start using crypto, right? So we think of ourselves as kind of like this, this sort of on-ramp, this, this start button for, for crypto. If you're making headlines, you can read about, more about us uh, online. And uh, that's about it, and I'm happy to take questions. Nice. Um, you mentioned about blockchain breaking our network effect. So I'm just wondering, from like the investors' perspective, do you think that would encourage more short-term behaviors? Because surely all the benefits are kind of currently front-loaded as opposed to the long-term gains so Well, Can you repeat the question sure, absolutely. So her question is, um, does does this kind of model encourage short-term behavior among users? Um, and I'd say maybe, but you know the only really Realize this value if the network is scaled um, That's to say, you know, it, it has theoretical future value You might be able to flip to somebody but you're not going to get 10,000 X unless you know the, the thing is scaled um, And so it's while it's true that liquidity does present some short-term issues. Um, I think on net It does align people towards longer-term things Uh, How is Coinbase handling the emerging proof-of-stake systems? Ah, So the question is, how is Coinbase handling the emerging proof-of-stake systems? So um, we are are closely looking at everything. I can't talk about any specific assets we're adding. Uh, We did publish a blog post in December talking about specific assets we were looking at, and that included several coins that implement proof-of-stake in different ways. Could you provide a, a more sort of fulsome picture of what the downside scenario for crypto looks like? You've been generally positive in your presentation, but obviously there's, a, there's another side to it perhaps, and could you highlight what that might look like, or what, what would be the cause of death? Excellent question. So, uh, you know, what are, what are the risk scenarios? You know, what, what are the downside cases for crypto? Um, I'd give a few, right? Um, I think it's, it's gotten pretty far. So as, as of 2019, you know, for example, crypto has sort of withstood like the crackdown of the Chinese government in, in 2017. It's stood enormous uh you know numbers of like articles proclaiming Bitcoin dead and and, and so on, um, and, uh, and and tons of bubbles and, and whatnot, right? Uh insofar as I think there's future risks, I put them in a few buckets. Uh first is partition tolerance. So um at least right now the, the Bitcoin blockchain is not built to handle extended partitions. So if for example the Great Firewall goes and blocks port eight three three three. Um, and then there's like a back and forth and eventually it um, becomes difficult for the blockchain to synchronize you know, across borders. Then you could have like a peekaboo problem where the chain is extended in, in China by mining, but most transactions are happening in the rest of the world and synchronization is not happening fast enough. Um, now, there's workarounds for this, like there's a satellite, which is pumping you know, the blocks for, from Bitcoin into China um, because China has control over airspace, but not space space, right? Uh, there's, there's other workarounds where you could, like, steganographically encode packets and bring them into China. But we'd have to actually run the experiment to see if it was possible for the great firewall to actually interdite it. Now, that firewall would have to be so tight that it would have to interdict not, um, not just the service, but any one megabyte transfer, like, in all of China across billions of people. So that'd be hard, but possible. So that's kind of, let's call that one, one approach, uh, you know, the partition tolerance. Second is if there's some CVE, you know, you know, like, really critical, um, a vulnerability that we we have not you know seen that allows people to counterfeit large numbers of bitcoins and you know like break break the value of the system and by the way, the reason i keep focusing on bitcoin here is it is sort of like the fundament of the system if it was hacked if there are serious security issues i think it would set back the industry like at least five years or so like if people have to rebuild around it with all that said though i think those those kinds of issues that i just mentioned are technological issues where it could set the thing back, but I think the fundamental concept of blockchains of decentralized currency is out there, and then folks, what, what they'll do is they'll fix that and then have a more robust version in the future. So that, that's kind of where I'm at and open to other thoughts. You talked a little about banks serving as a trusted source for record keeping, but the other main role banks have is is a monetary policy. That's why we have Federal Reserve Banks. Mm -hmm. And so I can see how Bitcoin does the record keeping function of banks, but I'm not seeing anything replacing the the monetary policy function. And like, if economists have learned one thing in the last like 200 years, it's that that's really critical to an economy's well-being. So like, how are you envisioning Bitcoin functioning as a currency without a monetary policy? Great question. So the the question is, if I if I can paraphrase, um, you know, like how does Bitcoin interact with monetary policy? How could it function as a currency without monetary policy? Uh, And so what I think is we are engaged in a grand experiment, um, which is what what I think of as empirical macroeconomics, right? So um, basically, uh, and I'm sure I'm going to offend some macroeconomists in the audience. Um, I think microeconomics is pretty empirical in the sense of you've got the theory of the firm and venture capitalists are running lots of experiments all the time and you have a thesis on how a company should be organized or not and if you're wrong, you, you lose money. Uh, with macroeconomics because it involves assemblages of very large numbers of people, it's hard to do like reproducible experiments until relatively recently. Um, so you know I actually have these supplemental slides. Oh. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I've got every question. Okay. So, blockchains is big, macroeconomics, and experimental science, right? So, <laughs> virtual economies, right, um, are, have been a topic of discussion for about 15 years. Uh, where, you know, this guy, Edward Castronova, a smart guy, a professor, has been looking at this in the context of like World of Warcraft and, and, and things like that. And in those kind of economies, you know, you, you print money, you, you know, in EVE Online, you print money, you see what the effect is on prices and so on. And it's, it's pretty cool where you can run experiments with, with a system of people who are actually trying and responding to incentives. Um, and what I think is going to happen is that type of work is going to link up with crypto economies, we're going to start to get a lot of real life, you know, empirical economic data on what life is like with, without a central monetary policy in, in this opt-in kind of system. And, um, one of the really good things about this is it's like a bonanza for econometrics people because, um, you know, sort of like there was this vague concept of six degrees of separation in the late nineties. And then we got this digital data structure of the social network, right? So there's a vague concept of six degrees of separation. And then you've got something that was, digital and computable, you could, you could, you know, think of it as a graph and so on. In the same way, we have this sort of vague concept of the economy, and now we've got a blockchain, which is the record of every single transaction that's ever happened down to the penny, back to t equals zero, right? And so every like economic theory that one has about like you know transactions or or price support or whatever can be tested. And importantly, one can also develop blockchains that have inflationary policies that are that are connected to central banks and so on. So I think what we're going to see is just a ton of different kinds of economic experiments: some inflationary, some deflationary, some demurrage, some weird kinds of combinations that that are, resist political classification. I think we're gonna we're gonna run the experiment and see what happens. Nice. So you briefly mentioned Coinbase uh, action in Venezuela, and that was somewhat of a controversial uh, thing. Could you expand a little bit more on what Coinbase did, and how it can apply to other emerging economies or distressed economies? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I think you asked, what did Coinbase do in Venezuela, and so on? Um, I think we've announced this, but we basically um, gave away money to folks on the ground in Venezuela. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of theories on, like, international aid, but you know, one theory is just give the money to people directly. You know, now they've got phones, you don't necessarily need intermediaries. People are often good judges of, of what to do with money. Um, and, uh, and and now you can actually, you know, via the fact that all these people have smartphones, just give them money directly, right? Um, so we have this uh, site, givecrypto.org, um, which is uh, funded by, you know, Brian, you know, our CEO and co-founder, and uh, and, a, and a bunch of other folks. And we're trying this experiment to see, okay. Can we get the money to Venezuelans? Um, do, is Bitcoin like something they can use or borrow against? Is, is it considered currency-like in that environment? Um, and if so, then what are the consequences? And if that works well, then maybe we can scale it up. right? So that's what we're doing here. Sir. Can, you confirm, uh, can you comment on the environmental impact on uh, currencies? So I've read that divided $1,000 worth of Bitcoin. What that means physically is that somewhere in China, $500 worth of coal are being burned. To wire up a mining farm, um, it, that doesn't seem sustainable if you want to expand. Um, so, what's the solution to that? Yeah. So, a couple of, couple of thoughts. Did um, you receive the question? Sure. Here? Of course. Of course. Yeah. So, what what is the environmental impact of Bitcoin? You know, is it something where like we're consuming tons of energy for it and, and so on? So, that's a that's a complex issue. But l- let me offer a few a few thoughts on that. First, is that um, a lot of Chinese mining is actually happening at night. And the reason it's happening at night is um, you have, uh, like, you know, hydroelectric plants, geothermal plants um, that are basically spinning a water wheel at night because, you know, power can't easily be stored in the grid. You know, like what happens is power consumption is usually maximal at like 12 12 noon, and then it kind of drops off at like 4 a.m. and then comes back up. It's got this sort of sinusoidal cycle. And at night, that power is often just wasted. Uh, But now what's interesting is folks are using Bitcoin mining as almost a kind of battery where what you do, rather than just throwing away that, that excess power, is you mine Bitcoin. And in theory, what could happen, uh, and you know, we're, we're starting to see some of those, is you can have markets where, while you might not be able to store power in, in, in a normal battery, you store it in the form of mined Bitcoin, and then you can have aftermarkets where it kind of it trades, um, and you might be able to balance the power grid better. So it may actually be something that leads to interesting innovations and in like, like like a form of energy storage. Um, but, so that's kind of one answer. Right? The second answer is, um, if you think about what like Bitcoin represents, uh, I, I don't think it's correct to compare it to, let's say, like PayPal, which is, you know, someone would say, well, it's so cheap, you know, PayPal, you're just you know, minusing and plusing things on a central server. I'd compare Bitcoin more to like a system of property rights, right? Like um, more analogous to, let's say, uh, you know, the, the the miners are more analogous to the police and the military, all these ex- extremely expensive things that maintain American property rights. Um, and so if you think about the energetic cost of that, it's actually very substantial. Um, and so this is a system of property rights which is, is developed in a different way. You can measure the amount of energy that goes into it. Um, I think it's probably less than the police, the military, and the banking system, and all the other things that enforce offline property rights. Uh, but I think that's the second, you know, comparable that, that's interesting. Sir, in the back. Uh, why do, see, there's so many amazing use cases for blockchain? Some of you, some of them you allude to, some of them are out there for banks and whatever. What is stopping companies to adopt it in a more widespread scale uh, today? Um, blockchain and, and also like banks that are hesitant to uh, enable their clients to, to trade in Bitcoin and so on. Yeah, so what's stopping companies from adopting on a widespread scale? You know, what's holding blockchain back? So in in some sense, you know, the industry is actually already fairly large in the sense of we saw many people here held cryptocurrency. Um, So the the first killer app of cryptocurrency, as gauche as it sounds, is hold cryptocurrency as an investment and hope it goes up, right? Okay, Um, but that speculation phase was necessary. And the reason we think of it as necessary is speculation was installation. That is to say, before you have this decentralized finance environment with decentralized loans and derivatives and so on, people have to treat those packets moving back and forth as money. So the last 10 years, what that did is you have an environment where 80% of Americans have heard of Bitcoin. Everybody kind of knows it's valuable. They know you know, a good chunk of Americans also know Ethereum is valuable and so on. And once they treat it as money, then you can actually develop apps on top of that. But you needed to have that speculative face to install it in people's heads. Um, Now, why aren't businesses using it yet? Um, I think what you're going to see is it's going to radiate out from the crypto sector. That is to say, businesses within the crypto economy, you know, miners, exchanges, uh, you know, blockchain companies, um, new asset issuers, et cetera, this is actually a large enough set right now where folks pay each other back and forth in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And the folks who are on Mm. the border of the crypto economy are folks like prop traders, right? Like who are, you know, just, you know, they're they're, uh, like guys in Chicago who invest their own money. Um, or um, fintech developers, right? You know, like Square has gone into the game a bit. Robinhood's gone into the game. Those are the folks on the border who are like kind of crossing the chasm. They weren't founded on crypto, but are starting to get into it. And and that environment, those folks, you know, will that'll grow for the next like three to five years. And then it'll kind of go out one more set and, and so on. Um, so I think it's going to be a gradual process, but I think over time, uh, you, you start to get more businesses involved as we build it up. Yes. So, can you hear me already? Right? Yes. Oh, great. So, we have a, a Stanford Journal of Launching on Policy and Philosophy, uh, which I'm attorney and I lead that. I was curious what do you think would be some good articles? What would you like to see in the governance or legal or policy space that would kind of push further this my kind of the, the academic guess, area? Great. So, the question was articles on governance, policy, philosophy. Well, so it happens I have some supplementary slides on that. All right. So, um, so basically, uh, here's let me give you kind of one concept that that I think is a very powerful one, right? So um, one concept I think a lot about is that a blockchain it's not just like a database; it's a database with a community, which is very different. It's like a database plus a social network, in some cases plus a protocol and a compiler, right? It was actually a pretty complicated you know inter- interplay. So a blockchain's value derives from its community. Meaning, you know, you've got Bitcoin Maximalists, you've got your Ethereum developers, like a million people are at these meetups now, you've got your XRP army and and so on and so forth, right? And the thing about this is just like you know within a country, um, you know, like the, the Estonians, there's the butcher, the baker, the counseling maker, they all interact. They have the Estonian croon, or they used to before they had the euro. And and then they can just you know use that within themselves. And that has an exchange rate with the outside world, right? That, that exchange rate is their API with the outside world. They use their own currency within their own, you know, kind of country and then the exchange rate outside. And the same way, once you've got a critical mass of enough people online who just believe in something, they can just transact amongst themselves in this crypto and, and value it. And then offline, you know, you may think you're crazy for valuing XYZ coin, but you're happy to buy and sell XYZ for USD with them. Maybe, maybe sell. Um, and, uh, and so, blockchain's value drives from this community, and one of the consequences of this is if you just take three random people, they're not economically aligned. Any one of them can lose or, or win together, right? Or rather, lose or win on their own. But if they all hold the same cryptocurrency, then they either all lose together or they all win together, okay? This is a way of, like, economically aligning human beings. This is, you know, when, when VCs talk about alignment, this is the underlying data structure that, 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 um, that underpins that. And so the thing about this is you have this community-forming behavior online, and that community-forming behavior leads to these tribes. And I think over time, what it does, you know, I can talk about this bit also, over time what it leads to is experiments in self-governance. Right? Where, you know, once you've got a system of property rights in the blockchain, you can start doing experiments on other kinds of things. So that's the type of stuff I think you could cover. Sir? Um, we've got a lot of cases where, like, people just lose their private uh, and then there's frozen Bitcoin that cannot be accessed anymore. And with the Bitcoin number being capped, um, is, there, is, is the industry thinking about the solution to actually generate more liquidity? So uh, is, so the question is basically, you know, folks lose their Bitcoins and the Bitcoin numbers capped, and how does the industry think about that? Um, I think, you know, like Bitcoin is meant to be like cash, right? If, if you lose $100, you can't message the U.S. government to give you another $100. It's a dollar, dollar bill down the drain, Right? Um, so that's what Bitcoin is kind of intended to be like. Um, in a sense, it actually benefits slightly every other Bitcoin holder because it's like, you know, renormalizing the cap table. You lose 1% of Bitcoin, everybody else's is somewhat more valuable. Um, the solution for this, there's a few. One of them is, you know, store your crypto with somebody else if, if you don't want to handle it yourself. Um, and a lot of people do that, right? So that's certainly an option. Um, the second option is something like multi-sig, where you have a few different folks who, um, you know, have keys to it. And there's, there's yet other kinds of, you know, sophisticated password reset, social reset schemes that make it harder to just lose your crypto by accident. But it's something that's being worked on. One more? Yeah, Yeah, okay, Hi, So, you mentioned earlier that um, blockchain is a partial move um, away from cloud, you know, into privacy. Yep. When would, do you see a point where there's a tipping point um, where it's a full move into privacy where it comes a really good use case for it? I think you need like hundreds of millions or billions of people to have crypto and you need homomorphic encryption. I think that's what starts to tip it. But that's like at least, you know, 10 years out, maybe 20. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production supported by the venture capital firm DFJ. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.